Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey peeps, welcome back. Last time I started the story on one of the most infamous serial killers in American history, H.H. Holmes. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and check it out. This week, I'm going to continue on the saga that is the Holmes' story. More schemes, cons, and yes, murders. So grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. So when I left you last time, Holmes had just committed his first murders with the disappearances of Julia and Pearl Connor and Emmeline Sagrand. While no bodies were ever discovered, it is likely all three died at the hands of Holmes, who worked diligently to keep up his corrupt endeavors. With Sagrand's disappearance and likely death in the winter of 1892, Holmes was again free to plan his next con. When Holmes initially arrived in Chicago, his preferred method was tricking investors into buying interest in companies that were promising some new invention. Through either the gas furnace to bend glass or the ABC copying company, Holmes could talk almost anyone into giving him money to further his efforts. By 1893, though, Holmes switched from peddling inventions to dabbling in real estate. At this point, the city was in full preparation to host the World's Fair and Holmes never one to miss an opportunity, started leveraging his Inglewood property as a potential site for a hotel. Like I mentioned last time, the third floor was already under construction prior to the announcement of the World's Fair. But Holmes began telling investors he hoped to use the addition to house visitors who were in the city to attend the International Showcase. It doesn't seem as if it took too much convincing on his part. Everyone in the city was looking for ways to turn the fair into a money grab, and Holmes quickly became flush with cash. Holmes secured a $3,000 loan in order to develop his property. He'd hire laborers to build portions of the supposed hotel, only to fire them at the end of the week and refuse to pay for their services. Building the addition gave Holmes the opportunity to purchase dozens of items on credit and sell them for cash. Teacups, bathtubs, mattresses, lumber, you name it, he bought it, all with a promissory note, only to sell the goods and keep the profit. Always trying to stay one step ahead, Holmes didn't use promissory notes in his own name. Instead, he created a man out of thin air, one H.S. Campbell, and used this alias to give Holmes permission to make whatever purchases needed with a promise to pay at a later date. When inevitably the bills went unpaid, Holmes could again feign innocence and shirk the responsibility. While it is such a key piece to the Holmes legend, there is no evidence to suggest Holmes ever made good on his promise to open a hotel for the World's Fair. There are no advertisements listing available rooms, no hotel lobby, and no records that indicate he had any guests. To further debunk the claim Holmes used the third floor as a supposed loading area for his hundreds of victims, comes the fact that the portion of the property used as hotel space experienced a fire in August of 1893, right in the middle of the festivities. 
at the time of the quote-unquote accident, the rooms were empty. Holmes held a number of insurance policies on the property and was seen the day of moving valuables and paperwork out of that space. The hotel, it seems, was just another lie Holmes told in order to convince people to fork over their money and goods. It was during his hotel building scheme Holmes met his next mistress and future victim, Minnie Williams. Minnie, an orphan and failed actress, was originally employed as a stenographer before coming to work for Holmes as a secretary. Shortly after beginning her employment, Williams and Holmes were involved in an affair. Just like with Emmeline, Minnie would refer to Holmes under a pseudonym, Harry Gordon, and soon sent a letter to her sister Annie that she was to be married. Minnie inherited a bit of property in Texas when her uncle passed away, leaving her with a small but respectable nest egg. Holmes worked his charms and convinced Minnie to transfer the deed of the property to a man named Alexander Bond. Holmes served as the notary, so there's no true way of confirming whether Minnie released the deed herself or if Holmes forged it later. But either way, once Minnie was out of the picture, Holmes made sure to claim the property. Holmes and Minnie were soon living as husband and wife, renting an apartment under the name Mr. and Mrs. Gordon, though he was still married, twice over. Eventually, Minnie sent for her sister Annie to join them in Chicago, and that was the beginning of the end for the two sisters. Shortly after Annie's arrival, both went missing, last being seen alive in July of 1893. Holmes' scheming started catching up with him after the fire of the hotel space in August. As he tried to collect the payments, the insurance company decided to open an investigation into the cause of the fire, suspecting arson. Holmes's creditors also began to get wise and went to a collection agency, hiring George Chamberlain from the Lafayette Mercantile Agency to look into his activities and try to recoup some of their losses. Not wasting any time, Holmes was summoned to a meeting on November 17, 1893, where over 20 of his creditors were waiting. They demanded payments for all the goods he had purchased on credit, or faced jail time. Holmes agreed to sign over a deed of a valuable piece of land in Texas to begin the process of making good on his debt. Meeting again just four days later, Holmes presented a deed to the property, just as he had promised. The paperwork had an error, likely created by Holmes to buy himself a little bit more time. Chamberlain set up a time for a third and final meeting, prepared to arrest Holmes if he did not show up with cash in hand. Holmes, again, always just a half a step ahead, left town, leaving behind wife Myrta and daughter Lucy. Ever the chameleon, Holmes reinvented himself once more, moving to Denver for a brief period and marrying his next wife, Georgiana Yoke, a woman he had been courting for over a year. Using the alias H.M. Howard, Holmes was able to spin a convoluted story Yoke somehow believed. While Holmes admitted to Georgiana he was using an alias, his reasons were a bit bizarre. He claimed he had to use the alias in order to retrieve property left to him by his uncle. The uncle, Holmes said, would only leave the land to him on the condition that he take on his name, Henry Mansfield Howard. It gets weirder. Once they were married, Holmes explained to Georgiana he would go by yet another name once they were in Texas because of squatters living on the property. Holmes claimed that should the squatters hear about H.M. Howard being in town, his life would be at risk. Again, Yoke believed the tale and went with the ruse. Oddly, though Georgiana fit Holmes's victim profile, 
a young woman who had just inherited a bit of money, it appears as though he was truly in love with her. He brought her with him on his travels to Texas, even though it was easier to travel alone. And after he was arrested, Georgiana testified against him in court. Her testimony proved the only time the detached homes ever appeared shaken. It is in Texas where Benjamin Peitzel begins to factor into Holmes's life and ends up the man who would prove to be Holmes's eventual demise. Peitzel, a petty criminal and heavy drinker, worked for Holmes in various capacities over the years, dating back to at least the early 1890s. Born in 1856, Peitzel was married with five children, some of whom would also become victims of Holmes. Recently released from a short stint in jail, Peitzel met Holmes in Texas, but like his friend, Peitzel used an alias, Benton T. Lyman. Together, they worked to secure their rights to and build upon Minnie Williams's inherited property. The property built supposedly mirrored the castle in Chicago. However, Holmes and Peitzel didn't stay long. Like he did with the pharmacy in the Inglewood neighborhood, Holmes and Peitzel used the property in Texas to extract cash. From buying merchandise on credit to taking out loans against the property, Holmes followed his Chicago playbook to the letter and left town owing thousands of dollars. After fleeing Texas, Holmes and his new bride, Georgiana, settled into St. Louis, where Holmes decided to purchase another drugstore. The only way he knew how, with a bad promissory note and worthless shares of stock. In this scheme, Holmes convinced the seller to hold off on recording the transfer deed, claiming he was worried the debt may affect his ability to outfit the store with goods. Working with his accomplice and eventual victim Peitzel, Holmes bought up goods on credit and was soon up to his same tricks. This time, luck was not on Holmes's side, and he was caught and arrested for fraud and selling mortgaged goods. Georgiana, ever the devoted wife, believed it was all a misunderstanding and worked tirelessly to get her husband freed. While awaiting his release, Holmes got uncharacteristically chatty and explained the details of a plan to defraud an insurance company out of a large sum. His plan, told to train robber Marion Hedgepeth, was to cash in a life insurance policy worth $10,000 by faking his own death. This plan was similar to the one he had thought of and abandoned years earlier. What he needed now was a lawyer who could be trusted. Holmes explained to Hedgepeth he would give him a small commission for a good recommendation. Unable to procure life insurance for himself, Holmes concocted a backup plan. In this version, partner in crime Benjamin Peitzel would take a claim on his own life and they would work together to stage his death. Holmes would procure a fake corpse and Peitzel would hide out until the claim was paid. At least, that's what Holmes told Peitzel. Peitzel moved to Philadelphia and set up shop as an inventor, buying and selling patents under the alias B.F. Perry. He then took out a $10,000 policy out on his life. On September 4th, Eugene Smith, an inventor who believed Peitzel, as Perry, was really a buyer and had been working with him to get one of his own inventions patented, discovered the body. Holmes planned to make the death look like a suicide. Using chloroform to subdue his former ally, Holmes likely plied Peitzel with liquor before making his move. Being intoxicated would assist Holmes in subduing Peitzel and would allow him to increase the dosage of chloroform as needed until he was sure Peitzel was dead. Once Holmes felt confident his former friend was gone, he went about staging the crime scene. He poured chloroform down Peitzel's throat and burned his body, 
singeing him and his facial hair. Holmes had not anticipated Peitzel's body would be found as quickly as it was, and this early discovery may have helped bring Holmes to justice. Eugene Smith immediately called for help, and the doctors on site felt the scene looked suspicious. For his part, Holmes was anxious to get out of town quickly and begin the process of collecting the insurance money. Convincing Ben's wife, Carrie, that he was still very much alive and waiting until the heat died down before reuniting, Holmes explained he needed her to positively identify the, quote, fake body as Benjamin so that the insurance could be paid. Dealing with a sick infant, Carrie sent her 15-year-old daughter, Alice, to fill the role. Much to Alice's surprise, the body she identified was really that of her father, Benjamin Peitzel. It is not known how Holmes managed to convince Alice to stay quiet and play along with the farce, but whatever he did worked, and Carrie Peitzel collected the insurance money on her husband's policy. Carrie was distraught, perhaps sensing that something just wasn't right, but Holmes maintained Benjamin was alive and would be reunited with her soon. And here is where stuff goes off the rails, quite literally. After convincing Carrie Peitzel that Alice would be better served if her younger sister Nellie and younger brother Howard were to join them, Holmes managed to gain custody of three of the Peitzel children. His story to Carrie was the children would be cared for by his cousin, Minnie Williams. The same Minnie Williams, who Holmes previously claimed as a wife, he likely murdered a year prior. With children in tow, Holmes began an elaborate and confusing journey across the Midwest and Canada via train. Each new city promised a reunion for the Peitzel family, but somehow every time they were scheduled to see their beloved husband and father, Holmes had some excuse as to why the meeting just couldn't happen and they needed to move on quickly to avoid suspicion. Holmes traveled from city to city with the children in tow, kept separately from their mother, who at one point was only blocks away. Adding to the plot was the fact Holmes was also traveling with his wife Georgiana, who was completely unaware of the children tagging along. To avoid detection, Holmes would set up tickets for different trains and travel with his wife. Then, once settled into their lodging, he returned to the train station to pick up the children, who arrived on a later train. He kept up this mania for several weeks and used his time on the run to pick off the children one by one. So a quick warning to you listeners, this next part is a bit graphic and involves the murder of children, so please skip ahead if you wish to avoid the details. Howard Peitzel, the youngest of the group, was the first victim. While staying in a rented home in Indianapolis, it is believed Holmes poisoned Howard using cyanide and then dismembered him and used an oven to burn his remains. After Holmes was arrested, bones were discovered, and they were believed to belong to Howard. Apparently, after burning his body, Holmes neglected to clean out the trap beneath the oven where the bones had sat. He maintained custody of Alice and her little sister Nellie and continued his trek across the country, and two weeks later, on October 25th, both Alice and Nellie were also murdered. While the lore says Holmes put them in a trunk and gassed them to death, this is a work of fiction. It is likely that Holmes used his murder weapon of choice, poison, to kill his final two victims. His crime spree came to an end when he was arrested in Boston on November 17th for attempting to defraud Fidelity Insurance, the company who issued and paid on Benjamin Peitzel's policy. While in custody, Holmes gave his first of many statements. He maintained Peitzel was still alive and that he and his children were hiding out in South America. 
Though still supportive and having faith in her husband, it was Georgiana who may have accidentally provided the evidence that was Holmes's undoing. She surrendered a metal box to the police, and inside contained letters written by the Peitzel children to their mother that were never mailed and several keys to rented houses. Between his arrest in 1894 and his trial almost a year later, papers began to write more and more outrageous and false reports of the various crimes committed by Holmes. This was aided in part by the Chicago police force, who were willing to throw suspicion at Holmes for any missing person in the area. While some papers focused on the crime he was charged with, many others had no issues with printing the macabre allegations thrown by anyone willing to talk with a reporter. Holmes stood trial on October 28, 1895, in Philadelphia. The bodies of the three missing Peitzel children had been discovered in the lead-up to the trial, but Holmes was never charged with their death. He remained accused of just one murder, that of Benjamin Peitzel. The trial was quick, and Holmes was convicted on November 2, 1895. He appealed his sentence, but the state Supreme Court denied his final petition on March 4, 1896, his death date was scheduled for May 7th. While awaiting his date with the gallows, Holmes decided to cash in on his fame and provide an interview, for the right price, of course. After a bit of a bidding war, Holmes wrote a confession claiming to have murdered nearly 30 people. The only problem? Some of those named were still alive. During his confinement, Holmes had spun so many stories and tales, it's hard to trust any one statement he provided. While later writers used his various confessions and newspaper reports as the evidence needed to classify him as some crazed killer, there's little supporting evidence to substantiate these claims. Holmes walked to his death on May 7, 1896. With a white handkerchief tied along his neck, the noose was affixed and the trap door opened. His neck did not break immediately, and so he hung for a number of minutes, slowly choking to death. Contemporary reports say it took anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes for Holmes to die. He was 35. The initial myth surrounding Holmes seems to come from some irresponsible journalism of the era. Even his most infamous quote, I was born with a devil in me, is a fake. Holmes was mainly a forgotten figure until the 20th century when Herbert Asbury wrote Gem of the Prairie in 1940. This book is where claims of Holmes's victim count reaches into the hundreds and where grim stories about the, quote, murder castles start to become the norm. Much of what has been written about Holmes came from the sensationalized and often unchecked reports provided by the papers of the time. And while definitely a bad human being who was guilty of likely nine murders, the more outrageous stories about him and his infamous murder castle appear to be just imagination. I read Adam Seltzer's H.H. H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil for a majority of my research for these episodes. If you want to learn even more about Holmes, because there is a ton I didn't get to, I would suggest picking it up. There are a lot of great quotes from the contemporary sources, and he tracks a lot of Holmes's movements with great detail. Thanks again to Val for recommending this topic. I hope it didn't prove too underwhelming based on his notorious reputation. If you want to request an episode topic, you know where to go, www.civicsandcoffee.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm-hmm.